Okay, well, I, I really enjoyed Nicola's presentation because I've been on the advisory board of the Peer Peace Project and I've actually met these guys. <laughs> so it's very interesting to see where they've gone to and what routes they're on at the moment. Future Trials is a very different project. It's, it's sort of other end of the spectrum kind of project, which is why it's always interesting to, to have us to talk. It's very much the same period that we followed students through from the point at which they applied to enter higher education. Um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to outline the future track study briefly, then I'm going to show you some data illustrating the diversity of the student population and the graduate population all the way along the line. Because one of the, one of the bees in my bonnet is there's an awful lot of discussion of um, grad, the graduate labour market as if it's almost confined to the kind of talent area. And of course, people do enormous range of undergraduate degrees. Um, and I think that what we're able to do on Future Track is to sort of cover that full spectrum, everything from people who go to do nursing degrees to people who want to do sort of city degrees and they're doing barristers, ambitions to be barristers or, or high-level financial quiz kids. Um, and then so I'm just going to show you some data, basically, and some of you might have seen some of this data before if you've seen presentations about Future Track, because I'm going to go through from the point at which people applied for higher education, their experience of being in higher education, and their experience <coughs> of making the transition out. Just snapshots there. I'm not going to talk about any individuals, although I might, if we've got time, talk about some of the individuals we've been talking to when we've been following them up just very recently, I've done interviews within the last couple of weeks that it would be quite interesting to talk to you about, which would give a similar kind of picture and very similar messages, actually, to the messages that Nicola ends up giving, looking at a very much more holistic individual basis. So, um, a very ambitious study. It basically started out as being uh, a study funded by higher education uh, career services units specifically to look at how students make career decisions from the point at which they apply to higher education and as they progress through higher education and out at the other end. Um, we started off thinking we were tendering for this project to Hexu and we thought, you know, what that sample do you need in order to, be able to cover the full diversity? And we concluded that actually, if you do an online study, you can have a census. You can actually, somehow, you can get, and we did get UCAS to send out invitations to participate to every single person who had applied to enter higher education and in, in 2005 to six, So we're starting off with potentially a huge sample, a very representative sample. And furthermore, we know what the profile of the applicants is. So we know what the biases are as we go through, and that's been incredibly useful. Um, exactly like the peer peer study, the people who come back and hang in and are still there, you know, seven years on now, are the people who tended to do rather better and have more successful careers than the people who either started out with low qualifications. The only thing, we had, to, we had to weight the data on each level for two things. One of the things was gender, because as I'm sure any of you have done research, you know, women are much more likely to respond to invitations to fill in questionnaires than men are. Um, and we had to wait for tariff scores at entry because people who've got high tariff scores are more likely to think, oh yeah, I'll have to tell them about myself. Um, so it's very ambitious, it's all web-based and it's known sample and it included the entire spectrum of UK 
HEI provision at undergraduate level. So we've got everything from people who were doing full-time degree courses at, at colleges of higher education who weren't awarded their own degrees, right through to the elite universities, Oxbridge. Um, and we also have inclusion of mature students, overseas students, disabled students, the whole spectrum in the survey. Um, we surveyed these students first of all in, in spring 2006 when they were in the process of applying to UCAS. Uh, we got UCAS to invite them, so that's why we have a, the, big, the big gap is that we don't have people who didn't apply to higher education, but we've got everybody who did. And, and, and we also have a small subsample, which nobody's really done very much analysis of, of people who didn't go on into higher education. In fact, some of them did. Progressively, they tend to, people who have applied tend to reapply, so most of them did eventually become higher education students. But there are a small, interesting subsample that if anybody thinks, tell, can tell me where to get the money from, I would love to follow up and go through because they're the people who applied. And there's two kinds of people. There's the kind of people who applied and didn't get the grades or didn't feel that they could go on and do it because of financial reasons. And there's the people who thought, I don't want to get into debt. I want to do something different. So they went off and got a, a traineeship, joined the army, got some kind of graduate training, well, and directly into banking or something like that. Interesting. So um, we, we got them, and, and we got at the first sweep, we got virtually 130,000 respondents. That's a lot, a lot of people. Uh, it's only about a quarter of the people who'd applied, but it disproportionately represents the people who actually went on to do an undergraduate degree. And, um, and it covers, of course, it enabled us to do some really interesting analysis in the early stages of ethnicity, for example. Basically, you can really look at the difference between Bangladeshi Asian, um, African Asian, and, and Vietnam and, um, and, and Chinese Asian and, and that was very interesting in terms of the relationship between that kind of ethnicity, different kinds of ethnicity and socioeconomic background that's very much skewed towards their kind of backgrounds and, and, and the kind of beliefs sometimes. I mean, for example, um, it's not particularly exciting finding, but it's pretty clear that, that, that women from Bangladeshi and Pakistani backgrounds are less likely to, to study, they're less likely to study at a university which is not at home, they're more likely to study some subjects than others. So you can actually look at these differences and see why is it, why is it that a, a highly qualified kid from a Bangladeshi background um, does one kind of course rather than another, because they systematically do. Um, it's all in the reports and I'm not going to talk about ethnicity today because I was trying to match with the, the gender, the gender social class brief that I knew that Nicola was going to cover. So we've got information on socioeconomic background, parental higher education participation, another really important variable in terms of the, the experience, the cultural capital, the human capital that people bring into higher education and the experiences that they have and the opportunities that they have as Nicola illustrated so well in the, in the previous presentation. Um, and it's almost we found that parental higher education participation is actually more important than socioeconomic class per se. So it's not being middle class, it's being middle class with parents who are graduates that is really the big, big advantage if, you, if, you're, if you're looking at the, the, the things that predispose people to have relatively successful higher education careers. To be more sophisticated consumers of higher education, and of course that's what we've all 
that's what our government policies has been encouraging people to be, to be consumers of higher education. Let me show you some stuff about that. Type of school attended is very important. Again, that's another area that we haven't really analysed in nearly enough detail yet, but obviously, to what the extent that we have, it's incredibly important. And if you look at the kinds of subjects that people do, the, for example, chemistry. Chemistry is essentially has become increasingly a middle-class subject area, because if you don't go to the right kind of school, which has a chemistry department, which encourages people to do separate chemistry, physics, and and, and, and um, other, other sciences, you're less likely to get onto that trajectory of having the, the grades that you need in order to go on to do the things that you do. So it's not only that, that allowing people to participate in higher education and come out with a degree is not enough. Actually, there's an awful lot of not enoughness before, prior to higher education, and I think that that's something that often gets forgotten about. Um, gender, age, disability, um, subject studied, very important. Whether or not people did any work-based learning, paid and unpaid work, all of these things we have about their backgrounds. And we also have um, a lot of information about what they expected, what they aspired to, how they prepared for, high, for, for this move. And again, Nicola's got some wonderful examples. I mean, the people from one end of the spectrum who already, even before they've gone to university, they've been doing internships or getting some kind of work experience, to the other end of the spectrum where people are leaving and saying, well, you know, I'm not going to think about that until I make sure I get my 2-1. And then they find, behold, they have a 2-1, but so has nearly everybody else, which is rather difficult. Um, we also, we also were very interested in how far people were developing different kinds of knowledge and skills in the course of higher education. And uh, Peter Elias and I have done quite a lot of work on this, and if you're interested, you, you should look on the website, because we've created a, a classification, I'm going to tell you about it actually, a classification of occupations where we're saying that, just saying the obvious thing, I mean, higher education, the kind of skills and knowledge that you get from higher education depends fundamentally on the subject that you do. It's a pretty basic thing, really. But some skills and qualifications are more marketable than others, are, are more transferable than others. Um, and that's something that we need to take account of when we're looking at what the relationship is between higher education and outcomes. Um, the best thing we've got is a full activity history of, of of what happened after people left university. So we asked them to fill in, at stage four of the survey, we asked them to fill in um, details of what they'd done from the point at which they left university to the point at which they were surveyed. So what, when they started doing it, was it a job, was it a course, was it unemployment, was it something else, was it travelling? And we have this map, which I'm going to show you, I think only a couple of slides off, but that, that, that um, you can actually look and see what they're all doing at different stages and what different kinds of students from different kinds of backgrounds or different kinds of degrees are doing at different stages. Um, we asked about the impact of student debt, the extent of debt, the impact of debt, and we asked about um, their future plans. And of course we've got their, their regional locations. So we've got this wonderful data set which we only scraped the barrel of in terms of analysing it. Um, and there's various things going on in that line, which I'll tell you about at the very end. So 
We find diversity at every single stage. We find diversity in terms of the information throughout their early education and, and the resources that they had, the kinds of career guidance, the access to career guidance, the knowledge they had about the options available to them. And that is one of the most fundamental barriers, I think, to young people making good decisions at, at the stage at which they're even at the stage at which they're choosing subjects to specialise in. We interviewed lots of, we, we, we surveyed lots of people who said, I didn't know that if I dropped maths at, 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 at GCSE, I wouldn't then be able to go on and do something. So the choices, in some schools, they are much better at enabling people to, to see what the options are in terms of the subject choices that they make than others. Um, and of course, in some schools, they have more options than in others. So, that's the kind of first layer of, of inequality of access, really, and and the opportunities they perceive. You know, if you don't, if you don't live in an environment where you know what a sociologist is, for example, to take me, nobody, you wouldn't think about being a sociologist when you leave school. Well, your parents don't know what a sociologist is either, you know. And if your school is not giving you options like that, you have to find a, a more complex route towards that kind of opportunity. Everybody knows what a doctor is and what a teacher is and what an accountant is. But actually, if you come from a really seriously disadvantaged background where you don't know a lot of middle-class people and you don't mix with a lot of middle-class people, you, you don't know what your options are. You don't know, you know that you've got good grades at school, but you don't really have an idea of the spectrum. And I'm going to show you some slides, a slide that, that sort of illustrates that to some extent. So, okay. Evaluations of problem, of universities. I mean, what's the difference between universities? Which universities are good universities? Not all schools are showing the league tables to people. Some schools really are showing the league tables to people. And there are people like the, the Nicholas Seconded Girl example who come from a background where they would say, oh, you don't want to go to UE. I mean, UE's not a very good university, you know. Whereas in other, in other, other households, they'd say, oh, place at Huey, it's wonderful. So there's the, the whole reference group, membership group from which people make career decisions, make university choice decisions, are very different. Um, we um, find diversity in the extent to which people were able to grow their cultural capital, if you like, their participation in, extra, in extracurricular activities. The, 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 it was definitely the case that People from the, there was a very strong there's a very strong relationship between working during term time and working longer hours during term time and socioeconomic backgrounds. So some 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 kids did not work at all during term time. Other kids work all the way through and were working as much as, as twenty hours more than that in some cases, whilst doing a full time degree. Now that does have an impact on the likelihood that you're going to get very good grades and it also has an impact on the likelihood that you're going to be joining lots of clubs and becoming the president of this and the secretary of that which clearly has a strong influence on being invited to be to be interviewed and in some of the more elite especially um, opportunities. Um, access to postgraduate study uh, middle-class students are much more likely to go on to postgraduate study. Middle-class students from the more elite universities are much more likely to go on to postgraduate study than work routine and manual working-class students. There's a strong relationship. You can actually graph it. Um, 
and in terms of the access to career opportunities and financial returns and satisfaction with uh, the experience of higher education and outcomes. I'm just going to show you some illustrations. So there's some interesting <coughs> insights as we go along. I mean, this is the mean tariff scores of UK undergraduates uh, who, are, who, who applied. Uh, I think we probably not got non-standard students there, I'm sorry to say. But this is standard students applying for higher education. And we find something quite interesting. I hope you can see that from the back, that women are much more likely from every social class to have got higher. They've got, they've got a higher average tariff score than men. Um, there's a strong, there's a very clear relationship between the, 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 the socioeconomic backgrounds that they come from. Um, but women are less likely to get higher education places than men with similar tariff schools. And that's quite interesting. And it's not simply because they apply for different subjects, independently of subject, holding, holding, <coughs> controlling for subject. Um, although women are more likely to go on to higher education, which may be one of the reasons why perhaps universities are implicitly more predisposed to accept men who have sufficient qualifications. Um, and the other interesting thing that, that I really, one of my favorite findings in a way, my most shocking findings from Future Track is that we asked students to rate themselves in terms of self-confidence at every level. So on terms of, in terms of your self-confidence, would you say that you are very self-confident, quite self-confident, adequately self-confident, not very, something like that, I can't remember the actual boxes that we had and we find a very strong relationship between ethnicity and, and, and gender but in every ethnic group there's this 10% gap it's rather like the earnings gap you know it's a gap between what the men see and what the women see in terms of their self-evaluation so men enter higher education more self-confident than women with lower qualifications I just thought it's quite nice <laughs> being a sort of bitchy person Okay, so this is the subject of life. They also apply for, this is, the, this is the distribution of applications. So you can see that it's very different. So higher education is incredibly gendered in some subjects. If you're going to do something like, uh, like maths and computing studies, you're going to be in a, a situation where you're very much outnumbered by men if you're a woman. If you're doing engineering, you're going to be even more outnumbered. Um, whereas if you're doing business administration, you're, you're actually, women are, are and, and business administration, again, men, more common. Biology, subject medicine. There's nothing surprising about this, except that it's so, it's so big. The differences are so huge, you know. We kind of have this idea, this common knowledge. Of course, men are more likely to do maths than women. They're a hell of a like, more, lot more likely to do maths than women. And that has a lot of implications in terms of access to some, or some career opportunities which require kind of high STEM qualifications. So they've written themselves off almost from the competition, insofar as we have to think about the competition, um, at quite an early stage. Um, not enough information about two things that I thought were quite important. Um, amongst this, is, this was at stage one. This was just when they just had applied to higher education. And we asked them if they'd had enough information about the relationship between courses and employment options, and also about the courses available. And you see that there's a, they see that there's a sort of gendered differences, and there are the kind of schools that they went to differences. 
and it's quite clear. I mean, basically, if you if you go to a state school, if you if you if you go to a state school and you're a, you're a man, uh, you are sort of what five um, percent less likely to feel that you had enough information, and and so on. This is not a big sample. Type of higher education institution to which people were accepted in terms of their prior education. And again, it's not surprising, but it's just so clear and so depressing. And you think, actually, this is a wake-up call to institutions to work a bit harder on getting their, 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 um, their entry requirements and their entry, entry procedures scrutinized more carefully. It is not surprising that people who go to a selective school who presumably have higher qualifications, they might even be <coughs> more clever on, on, on in, some, in, in many cases, but they've had the opportunity to develop their skills and knowledge and uh, they end up more and less likely to go to different kinds of institutions. Subjects studied by socioeconomic background. Again, this is, this is, you, you want to look at these slides and you want to go back and read the reports if you're interested in following any of these things up, but you can see very clearly that um, some subjects are uh, more dominated by professional middle class people than, than others. Um, that's just the point. And here is a nice, I like this slide, although it's a very complicated <coughs> slide, and I hope you can all read it at the back, can you? It's, it's, uh, it's just a selection of subjects, and we're looking at the proportions of, of people. With The top line is the proportion of all accepted applicants. So 55% women are more likely to be in universities and, and in this cohort, the, the 2005 to 6 cohort, and indeed subsequently. Nine, only, only just under 10% of, of, of all accepted applicants are Asian, 5% black, 20, um, 11, 12% under, under 20, over 25, and 41%. So you start off with a huge skew towards middle class backgrounds. Um, but it varies by subject. In nursing, it's less likely to be the case. In computer science, it's less likely to be the case. In, in um, sociology and media studies, but the subjects, the, 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 and, and, and one of the more interesting ones here is <coughs> pharmacy, pharmacy, don't you think that's interesting? I mean, 42.7% of pharmacy students in our cohort were Asian. Only 9.6% of the applicants overall are Asian. Now, why is it? I mean, that, I, I do know some of the answers to this, or speculative answers to this, but nobody's really explored it. Asian kids are much more likely they're getting very good grades in sciences. Why don't they do chemistry? Why don't they do some other options? This is, uh, this is so, so it's, there's, there's lots of interesting research projects in there. It's got to do with cultural backgrounds often. It's got to do with beliefs about um, the kinds of work that will, will, will be uh, available as a result of doing these things, for, for women particularly, but also for men. Um, it's got to do with cultural values. But... Um, there are other things that are a bit harder to explain, perhaps. I mean, the fact that uh, that black students and black students doing pharmacy too—that's interesting, isn't it? Um, mature students, again, interesting differences there. But um, this opens up the, the kind of asks more, raises more questions, doesn't it? 
Extracurricular activities. Again, this is just a slide that shows you this is what they said. This is not, we're not asking what they did, it, but whether they're available. And, and it does depend on the kind of university you go to. So, you know, perhaps, you know, there is an idea this, that, that as, as a general principle, there are exceptions, but this is the average. And this is how they ended up. The class of degree they got by socioeconomic background. And you get this pattern again of there being a greater propensity. And I'm sure that is related. I can, in fact, I've done some analysis that suggests that's closely related to the extent to which students also worked in paid work, which was not related to the, the, the courses that they did. There's good paid work and there's bad paid work, you know. There's good paid work, which is actually <coughs> developing the skills and knowledge of your course so that you can go on and get a job and have opportunity, have, have, have evidence that you've done it. But employers, as, as Nicola said, are not terribly impressed by the fact that you've been working as a barmaid or something. Or, or, or something like that, even if you've actually also managed to get a good degree at the same time, which I think is really quite an achievement. Um, debt on graduation. And again, we've got the same pattern, you see. Um, the, 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 the students from the, the, the more um, professional backgrounds are less likely to have any debt. Their debts tend to be slightly lower. But there's a lot of debt around at every level. And that's are really shocking. And, and what we do find is that, I don't think I've got the, yeah, this is, I think this is almost more interesting. There's debt, there's, there's, there's not whether you have debt, but it's whether your options are limited by debt, repayable debt. And I think what we get here, I'm showing it on gender now, but I think it's rather surprising. Why should it be that women tend to be more affected by, more limited by debt than men? More women saying, I wanted to do a postgraduate study, but I didn't go on to do that. I couldn't do it. Um, or I had to take the course near home. Couldn't take a gap year. So women seem to be more constrained. Again, it's something that you really want to go and say, well, let's, let's interview them and find out why. Can I just ask a clarifying question? Uh, was this, did they, uh, when you asked the question, separate out debt from the student loan company from like credit card debt or whatever they did. We did ask all about that, but, we, but this, the question was about repayable debt. Okay. So, so we thought there's some some people had debt that they had to repay, mm -hmm. and some people had loans and and and. Um, so uh, the student loan company debt, which is sort of all income. It's included. It's included. It's, it's, included it's all included. Yes, it's included. I can't remember. I think there was some kind of. You can't look at the questionnaires. Our questionnaires on the website. Our website. I've given you our link at the end, and you can see what the actual question was. But we tend to. We tend. There was. It was a complicated question. Is it excluding mortgage repayments or, or there were things that obviously because a substantial proportion of especially mature students have different kinds of debt. Um, sexual distribution, and this is where they went to when they left university. This is, this is the jobs that they were working in, those who were in employment. And we can see that there's a, a difference again between men and women. Um, I haven't, I don't think I've done this cross tab, but I, I, I have done somewhere, but I haven't brought it with me uh, in terms of, 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 um, of socioeconomic background. But the gender one is quite powerful, really. And it shows you very clearly that women are much more likely to go into, twice as many women effectively go into teaching and education than men do. And, and three, nearly twice as many women go into uh, the, the, the public services. That includes nursing, it includes local and, and central administration. Um, and men are more likely to go into the, the higher paying 
areas, so ICT and media, banking, manufacturing, uh, construction, that would be mostly civil engineering. Um, where is hospitality management? Oh, distribution, yes. Most of the jobs in this sector tend to be non-graduate jobs. We'll talk about that in a minute. So there's um, quite a high proportion of students who are in areas of employment, which is not professional or, or, or managerial in any sense. Um, we asked them, we wanted to get a handle on how did they perceive these jobs, you know, because I'm in, a, I'm in a kind of constant battle with economists who measure everything in terms of the rate of return to higher education. And I have interviewed so many graduates who are really, really happy doing really badly paid jobs because it's exactly what they want to do. Because they did a degree in arts or, 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 or some sort of area which lends itself to low paid sectors. Um, so we asked them, how appropriate is your job for somebody with your skills and qualifications on a scale of one to seven, where one is ideal? And seven is very inappropriate. And this is sort of looking at, looking at it according to the socioeconomic background thing again. I mean, the differences are not enormous, but they are actually quite significant when you've got a large sample. So if you're talking about a 2% or 3% or 5% difference, that is a big difference. Um, so again, you can look at this when you see the slides. Can you just um, explain it a little bit? Because the very inappropriate and the ideal colour look very similar. <coughs> Oh, well, it goes chart. from the bottom. So this is the, 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 basically it. Oh, they do, don't they? That's yeah, 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 yeah. I think it's probably just the projection. It goes from the bottom. So this is ideal. Mm -hmm. This is, you know, two, three. And the more it goes up, this is the... the I mean, I must change that colours, mustn't I, or something. It doesn't look quite so bad in mine. It probably but looks all right on Well, it doesn't, it doesn't look good enough, actually. Yeah. So I apologise about that. And I hope the, the, the next ones won't have the same problem. Uh, but, but, you know, the, the, and, and this is, there's a kind of subjectivity here. It's not, this is not science. You know, is your job ideal for you? Um, I suppose we started out with the idea that, you know, if somebody does a medical degree, they become a doctor. It's ideal, isn't it? Whereas if somebody does a history degree, they'd have a different, they'd be considering different things. So a, a historian who goes in to do journalism might say, yeah, you know, it's quite, some, whereas another historian might go in and say, well, I'm not required to know about this the French Revolution very much, so maybe it's not appropriate. So it's, there's a, there's a, we cannot regard this as scientific, but on the other hand, most of the quantitative research findings of surveys that you read in the paper about graduate outcomes are exactly like this. They're turning qualitative stuff into quantitative measures. Um, the extent to which your current job in your current organisation is done by graduates, we thought that was quite an interesting measure because you know, are people going into going into jobs? And again, it's 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 a bit flawed because nowadays you go into a call centre, they're probably all graduates and they might be doing really low-level work. But again, it's a perception, and it does. We do get the same kind of pattern where, you know, going from the left, it's this. Um, the, the the bigger this thing is, the bigger these are, the more likely it is that a job that's been done only by graduates. Um, and 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 as a general principle, that's quite a good guide to um, whether they're in appropriate jobs, matched with the other. So, what's a graduate job? Um, this, is the, this is the work that Peter and I have been doing. Um, basically, we've done this before. We've attempted to do this before, um, to some extent. Um, but um, we realized that, that the, the classification that we developed before, which was called Sokichi, was very much, it was UK-centric. And it was very much based on 
what what graduates were actually doing. So uh, we we traced the we. So some of you may remember. So I don't want to go into it in great detail, but we had traditional graduate jobs that had always been graduate jobs. We had modern graduate jobs that uh, were jobs which became graduate jobs in the 60s when higher education expanded. So there were more technological jobs, managerial jobs, and then there were new graduate jobs, which were the jobs that suddenly were becoming graduatized or, or becoming graduate jobs, which previously maybe didn't need a degree, maybe they needed a diploma, maybe they needed experience. So things like, um, oh, nursing, nursing was actually at that stage a niche graduate job. Now nursing is graduate entry job. So these things change. And when we when we thought about it, we thought we really want to tie this, this whole knowledge economy thing down to looking at how far are people using the knowledge and the skills that they developed in higher education. If we're talking about a knowledge economy that demands people to have particular skills of knowledge, how far is that actually what's happening? Or how far are, are degrees simply a proxy for something else which might be a very satisfactory middle-class background that puts you on the right trajectory? So, so we, 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 we looked at um, all of the occupations in, in the labour force survey uh, we looked at what they, what they required people to do, the knowledge and skills that they required people to have in order to do that job in a satisfactory way. And we, we, we classified them on a scale of 1 to 10, where we're, we're 1 to 9 actually, where 1 was, well, you know, not very much skill or knowledge there, um, where, where, where 9 meant very high levels of skill and knowledge. And... Um, we look at these three and we find that once people who get to a sort of level of, of sort of about six um, in levels of skill, in one of these three areas, in terms of expertise required, the expertise required to do the job, the knowledge and expertise required to, to orchestrate the, the demands of their job, or orchestrate other people's knowledge, and the, the communication of knowledge. So these were the three things that we picked up when we did very qualitative, extremely qualitative interviews with graduates in a previous study where we asked them, what did you do yesterday? What did you do yesterday? What was the first thing you did? What did you do next? What was your role in that meeting? And we analysed how far they were using different kinds of skills and knowledge in each of these occupations in order to assess how far they were using the... the education, the higher education that they had had. Um, so you get the picture on that. And if you look at professional and managerial, this is, this is from the activity histories. These are going from the bottom. The, the, this is the point at which the, the 2009 graduates entered the labour market until the point at which um, we surveyed them. And I, I stopped at January, the January 2012 because Basically, we did a few interviews after that. We did a few, we got a few responses after that. The numbers are so small. You can see that it's beginning to get a bit jagged. That's because of small numbers, really. But what you get is this picture. This is a very, is it not a very depressing picture of the UK graduate labour market or the, the market for graduates? If you see that only half of professional and managerial occupation people were working in um, background, were working in professional and managerial jobs. Maybe if we take it more towards here, but there's a slow entry, so they're not, there's, there's, there's quite a lot of people who are going into and remaining in non-graduate jobs for quite a long time. 
And this is where they were by the time we surveyed them in terms of the extended socioeconomic background. And again, you see that neat kind of patterning between social background and, and the kind of opportunities that people had been able to access. So we've still got more than half of graduates from, non, from routine and, and, and manual backgrounds in non-graduate jobs, sort of, uh, oh, what is it, 18, 30 months after, after they graduated? That suggests that you know, there's a big problem in terms of the relationship between the supply and demand of higher education in the UK, demand for. Um, this is just a, a, a slide to show you the impact of, of, of um, participation in extra extracurricular activities. Um, and comparing people who were from routine and manual backgrounds who'd been an office holder in, a, in, a, in an association at the university. Again, it shows, this is, this is maybe Harvey, <laughs> maybe people who are actually able to take advantage of things um, that, that are more likely. So that, that's the kind of, it has a strong impact, despite it's not just socioeconomic background that is the thing that people, people are carrying inequality through higher education. They're not all carrying inequality through higher education, but they're disproportionately coming out at the other end and able to access the glittering prizes sort of jobs. And we've had a, an economist, uh, an economic student just this term doing a little project looking at the, really, what is the relationship between getting really good jobs uh, from Future Track survey and, um, and, 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 and the kind of university they went to. And what he found, interesting enough, was that it was the expert jobs. And these are the kinds of jobs, Nicola's job, the examples Nicola's giving, barrister and, 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 and uh, high-level finance accountant. These are expert jobs where you get the job because you have the expertise which you have learned in higher education to do it. You have other things too, but you have that, and that's, that's what gets you the job. You can't kind of walk in and say, I want to be a, a trader in this uh, big economic accountancy, if you haven't got the background to enable you to the economic, the, the educational background. So it's the really higher level jobs that are being increasingly, perhaps, diff more difficult to access for um, people from less advantaged backgrounds who don't have the cultural capital, who don't have the financial support to enable them to do the kinds of things that, that some of Nicholas respondents were able to do. And this is the earnings distribution by gender. Again, it's an interesting pattern, isn't it? The uh, women are more skewed towards the lower earnings levels. The men are more likely to be in the, in, in the higher ones. Um, I leave you to contemplate that, but this is a distribution in terms of the subjects that they did. And again, it's not just, you can see, it's not just that they're doing different subjects. So, oh yeah, well, women are doing English and history and education. They're not doing uh, STEM subjects. Yeah, in some subjects, the gender gap is much bigger than others. I mean, law is a very interesting example of that. Um, but... Uh, on every one, I think, except for, um, let's just look, linguistics and classics, that's a very, a rather elite topic, isn't it, probably? Elite to access, to, to access the subjects. There's, 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 there's this gender pay gap. It's very interesting. And, and this is two years after graduating. You know, it's not 
when they've had lots of babies and had career breaks and things. Uh, we looked at this on an earlier project um, where we compared graduates of humanities, law and engineering. This was seven years on uh, where we did a lot of mixed methods research. We did a lot of interviewing here. And I just I love just showing this slide because it shows the complexity in a way. So you've got three things we're asking about. Average earnings, there's a gender pay gap in each of these between men and women. It's biggest in 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 um, in, in, in law, but it's distinctive at all levels. These are men and women who graduated in 1995 and who were surveyed seven years later and who, um, <coughs> no, no, it's, yeah, it is, seven, seven years later. So it's quite old data in terms of the earnings, which, you know, there's no 90 grand in here, but that was what it was like these days. And uh, they, they um, they, they were earning distinctly different amounts of money. And they were all working full-time. They were, they were graduates working full-time who had graduated in the same cohort. Um, we find this gender pay gaps. But we find something else rather interesting. We find how far they were using, what proportion of these people were using their degree knowledge and subject knowledge in their current jobs. And uh, we find that in the law, of course, it's very high. But the men are more likely to be still well within the, the legal spectrum doing law. In engineering, there's been a, a, a drop-off. So that in engineering, they're, they're, women are less likely to be being engineers. And we know about that from the interviews that we did. Because if you interview a female engineering graduate and you say to them, have you ever experienced any difficulties in terms of uh, accessing the kind of opportunities that you wanted or obstacles to developing your career? They always say, after a little gap, something like, well, it's difficult being a woman in a man's world, or being a woman is very difficult. So there's still a very gendered um, environment to work in, where women reported all kinds of things which predisposed them to think, I don't want to do this anymore, I want to move sideways, I want to go into personnel, marketing, something like that. Uh, humanities, they're less likely to be using their degree subject in their current job. I guess that, I guess that most of them are people who are teaching, the ones who said yes to that, still seven years on. Um, so we get all the way through indicators of economic and social disadvantage. And we've looked at, we can pull out the variables associated with the capacity to access opportunities. So it's accessing them to start. The variables associated with the capacity to take advantage of opportunities. And again, that's, um, that's an interesting one that, that isn't really time to go into here, but one of my colleagues has done a, a follow-up study looking at student mothers through university and out to the other end. And the, the location, the, the point that Nicola raised about, you know, being in Wales and, and really all, the, all the, the good jobs in London, we found quite interesting examples of that, of people who just weren't finding the opportunities that they, that they wished to access where they were, Partly sometimes because of other responsibilities if they were mature students, sometimes because of location or, or lack of resources if they were younger. Um, and the variables that are associated with the quality of opportunities, back to Rashil, the, the economic student. Yes, they're getting into expert jobs, these people from the, the high-flying universities, but the people who get into the really highly paid jobs are a very small and very select minority. Um, and they're fundamentally middle class, um, highly qualified, um, 
elite universities. Um, and of course the fear was associated with all the things, the likelihood of being unemployed, likelihood of having secure work, likelihood of having um, high income. Um, so our findings are a bit pessimistic really. We find that <coughs> the proportion of those who have accessed HE from socially disadvantaged have, have tended to remain stable for a start and the, the, those who are working in non-graduate jobs has increased very, very substantially since 1992. Um, the graduates in lower social backgrounds are more likely than those to be in non-graduate jobs. And after controlling for all these prior educational achievement, type of university attended, class of degree, subject, social background, gender and class remain very significant in terms of this missing explanation for why is it that the that, that they haven't been able to realise the opportunities that they had. Um, since then, um, I encourage you to look at the website. Haiki Bailey and Harula Tanaku have done a really nice little project looking at the experiences of international students from this wonderful big data set, which has got all these people that we, didn't, we haven't explored yet properly, um, about their experiences. Claire, Gabby and Haiki have done a, a Nuffield-funded study. Um, Daria Luchinskaya, who I think you will hear more about, has just completed a PhD on, on the difference between students who, who, um, who began early careers in SMEs and in, in larger organisations and what effect that had on their ability to develop their careers on beyond, beyond the, 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 the future. So these are people who have now been in the labour market since oh, either 2000, summer 2009 or summer 2010. And we are doing this study, which is called Precarious Pathways into Employment. I've got a few leaflets about this. We're doing a study. We're following through some of the future track people. And this is a lovely, lovely qualitative study because we're actually talking to them and asking them questions and asking them the why questions. Why did you do that? How did you do that? How did you get the job? Why do you think you got it kind of questions? We will be able to tell much more about, um, about how this complex labour market works um, and uh, we're trying to get funding to do a fifth sweep so we can follow them on in the way that we did with the seven years on study so I do hope that if you've got any ideas about how we can do this more effectively or if anybody wants to we're about to deposit the data set into the, the Essex the secure data archive um, the HEXU who funded it have been reluctant to do that until they felt that they'd gained as much um, um, impact, I don't know what the word would be, returns to it, because it was a big investment on their behalf. But now, and the evidence seems to be that they're moving towards saying, yes, we can make it more available. And There's such a lot of stuff in there. I would really love it if other people came in and followed up. And the key th opportunity that it is, has now is to follow up specific people. We're doing this, th this is a Midland study, following Midlands graduates who either lived in the Midlands before they um, went to university, studied in the Midlands, or, or working in the Midlands afterwards. And we're looking at how they made the decisions, because these are people we can actually go out and talk to and, and interview on the telephone. And we're getting fantastic data um, about particularly the impact of networks and unpaid work. I mean, that was the focus of this, is this whole precarious, the fact that, that the labour market is becoming much, much more precarious for young people, all kinds of young people, and we are looking at 
people who leave school and don't go into higher education. But well, I've interviewed um, a couple of people in the last week, actually, and one of them was a high-flying man who had, um, who had really, he's the most career-planning person I've ever met, who, um, who was very clear from the outset. He'd done voluntary work with St. John's Ambulance Brigade. He'd uh, Red Cross, the Red Cross, actually. And he'd, he'd done lots of experiences. And the first job he got, he said, well, um, the first job I got, actually, I was interviewed by this guy. Um, and I, I, I'd been uh, president of the Scuba Diving Association at my university. And uh, this guy was a scuba diver, too. And he said, well, I mean, I think that's why I got the job. But I think it helped. <laughs> and, uh, and, but, but he had been very admirable. He'd planned through, and he knew where he wants to work in 10 years' time. He was very clear. He told me exactly the organization, and he's going to be there in 10 years' time. And I kind of bet he is. The other person I spoke to uh, last week was, uh, was a woman who, is, who did a degree at Warwick University. She, um, she got a good degree. She, um, she'd done one internship, she was doing English and, and French or something like that. She'd done one internship, um, paid internship in London with, a, with the Department of Education or something like that, with a, with a government department. And she said, well, I, I could do that because it was a paid internship. And I said, is there anything else that you would have liked to do? And she said, well, I would have really liked to do a, an internship in publishing or, or in, in PR, because that's a kind of obvious thing for somebody like me to do. But there's no way that my parents could afford to pay for me to be in London and not, not do that. So now she's a problem. She's a secondary school teacher. She's a very, very good secondary school teacher. And she's enjoying it. But, but I think it's the, it's the road's not taken. And that's why you need to do qualitative as well as quantitative, but I think you really need to do the quantitative stuff as well in order to see how the patterns work out. So I think we should all be pushing for more mixed methods research and, and, and persuading government departments that that's really important. It's not just getting the stats and doing econometrics and, and coming out with weeks of return. We really have to look at what's going on and how it's happening. Anyway, I'll shut up. <laughs> Thank you.